This is Sam. This is Paul. And this is Southpaw. Yo, this is Sam. Before we start the regular show, I have an announcement to make. But before the announcement, I have to thank Yuz678 for his review of Southpaw on iTunes. So the announcement. We have a Patreon. What does that mean? It means we need money. Like half your lunch money once a month. If you don't know what Patreon is, it's a way to support your favorite online people directly. So instead of us constantly creating GoFundMes, it's just continuous crowdfunding so we can continuously make these shows. Listen, watching pay-per-views is not cheap. And also there's the equipment we've already bought. And actually, the equipment we do have isn't that great. We'd like to get better equipment and equipment to do video live streaming. So what better resolution for 2019 than to support your favorite underdog causes, like us. If all 50 listeners became sponsors, well then, we'd have 50 sponsors. But that's still pretty good, right? What do you get for becoming a sponsor? Besides making this a paid gig for us, to not only help with show costs, but also living costs? You'll get access to extended summaries of every episode, written by Paul. So if you find any typos, blame him. You'll also get access to our private Discord channel. And we also plan to do bonus episodes just for the Mighty 50 sponsors. So far, we have one. Which is amazing since we didn't even announce the Patreon yet. Rondi, or Ronde, you will go down in history as the first member of the Mighty 50. A true legend. We salute thee. So with all that said... If you'd like to be one of the OGs of this show, you can find us at patreon.com slash southpawpod. Remember, it's southpawpod, like in podcast. I'll also include a link in the description for this episode. So today we're here to discuss what the fuck happened to Chris Weidman. And Paul's going to highlight all the ways he was great and maybe how he dropped off. I'm taking more of the perspective that he was great, but never as great as people thought. So Paul, what do you have for me? So I want to start off by saying I'm a huge Chris Weidman fan. So yes, clearly there's some bias. I want to get that out of the way. And I think it's worth mentioning that for Chris Weidman, he came up at a time when Anderson Silva's shadow loomed large. And he does have a lot of hype because he was the guy who took him out. But I think it's important to note that his skill sets, even in losses, are still there. And no fighter that has fought Chris Weidman has had an easy time getting him out. So what made him great? It's important to note that even in 2010, when Matt Serra was still actively competing in the UFC, when he was interviewed by Ariel Helwani and he was asked, well, who's some of the guys you have that are on your roster? that Sarah Longo team that's on the come up. 
he mentioned Algernon Sterling, but he said Chris Weidman. This kid's going to be the champion. Even before he even got in the UFC, Matt Sarah was so confident that his pupil was going to be the next big thing. And for those that might not be aware, Chris Weidman comes from a wrestling background. And with a year of formal jiu-jitsu training, he was able to qualify for Abu Dhabi, where he faced Andre Galvao in the quarterfinals. And he took him to a decision with just a year of training. I think that's something to be said just on that accomplishment alone. And he started off his MMA career in the East Coast promotion Ring of Fire. He beat Uriah Hall and Costa Filippo, who would later on become a teammate for a brief period, before he made it to the UFC on short notice. He went undefeated five fights while debuting in 2011 and eventually was given a shot against Anderson Silva. And before he fought Anderson Silva, there were guys within the MMA world, especially within different fight camps, who believed this guy might be the one. I don't know if I'm completely sold on him, but if anyone's going to take on Anderson, it's going to be Chris Weidman. Someone with good striking discipline, understands range, can follow a game plan, and has excellent wrestling. And that turned out to be the case. The first part of everybody's prediction was right. And I had been hearing about him um, just from the Henzo affiliation because I used to train under the Henzo affiliation. I used to hear about him uh, a couple years before he even started fighting in the big show. And the first part of the prediction is future champion and the person to beat Anderson Silva. Yes. But what people thought that meant was if you're the person to beat Anderson Silva, then you're also going to be the champion for an era. And that part he didn't do. And I don't think he was ever going to be able to do it. I think he was the guy who was going to beat Anderson Silva at that time because Anderson Silva was already getting old. Chael Sonnen kind of already created a game plan. There's already been several people who almost beat Anderson Silva in the UFC, starting with Travis Lutter. And he's been beaten before in pride against good grapplers. So style matchup, Chris Weidman matched up well, but... Did he have all the tools to be a reigning champion like Anderson Silva? People assumed that because they thought, oh, if you could beat this guy, you're that much better. But sometimes styles make the fights and he was the right style matchup to beat Anderson, just like Chael Sonnen was. Um, just that Chael couldn't do it. There was also talks about GSP doing it, fighting Anderson. And he was a good style matchup, but it ended up being Chris Weidman. And then afterwards, yeah, Matt Serra was right. He was champion and then he lost it. And... He's been on a downward spiral ever since. So let's talk about style matchups. Do you think Anderson Silva benefited from good style matchups, his career in the UFC? Or was he that guy where the promotion got behind because he was so dominant and he can win against all styles? He's proven he could beat all styles. Even the challenging ones like Dan Henderson, like Travis Lutter, he ended up beating them anyway. But Chris Weidman caught him at the right time where Chris Weidman was on the come up and Anderson Silva was on the way down. I don't think the promotion was that high on Anderson because there was the UFC in Abu Dhabi that was just complete disaster. It's just that Anderson just kept beating everybody. And I'm sure even UFC, there were points where when Anderson Silva was fighting Damian Maia or Dallas Latas or Patrick Cote, the UFC wasn't completely sold on him. So I don't think the UFC was trying to give him good style matchups. I'll also note I'm somewhat biased against Anderson Silva because he was also 
the first guy to hand the loss to one of my favorite fighters, Hayato Sakurai. So I've always viewed Anderson Silva with a critical lens. And even when he fought grapplers, I thought, well, Dan Henderson did well in the first round. He got caught. He had a terrible game plan. Travis Luter came in with the right game plan. Unfortunately, he had such a terrible weight cut, he couldn't execute. And Chael Sonnen is a fighter that's known to win a fight until he loses it. Because of all the people that Anderson Silva had already beaten, when Chris Weidman beat him, all of that legacy transferred over to Chris Weidman, as if he had beaten them. He got what they call the rub. It's like he became the lineal champion. Because he beat Anderson Silva, that automatically means, in the minds of a lot of fight fans, that he could have beaten all these other guys. And maybe he could have. But before he fought Anderson Silva, he had beaten Alessio Sakara, Tom Lawler, Damian Maya, and Mark Munoz. That's not the same list of killers that Anderson Silva had beaten. So he beat those guys to get the shot at Anderson Silva. And that's kind of early, but he got it because Anderson Silva had beaten everybody else. So Chris Weidman didn't have to take out all these other contenders because Anderson had already done it. I think it's also fair to mention that Chris Weidman took on half those fights on short notice. I know Damian Maya, he took on... I think 12 days notice where he essentially did a crash course in weight cutting in order to be eligible for that fight. I think when you compare skill sets, Chris Wyman is the much more complete of all the guys that Anderson Silva has fought. So let's get to the point then. Like him doing so poorly now is consistent to my original belief that he was always overhyped, right? What happened to him then if he wasn't overhyped? If he was this good badass that you're talking about, then what happened? I think there's a multitude of reasons why he has hit such hard times lately. What kind of hard times? Let's talk about his record. So in his last five fights, he's won one of them and he's lost the other four by knockout. Only three of them were knockouts. The other... No, hold on. Because the Luke Rockhold, it was a stoppage. (laughs) It was TKO because of punches. Yes. It wasn't technically like one punch knockout. Correct. The referee stopped it because of a barrage of punches he was taking. Against Yol, the cheater, he got need, flying need. Fair enough. No complaints there. Against Musasi, he thought, oh, this is within the rules. Maybe I can get a way around it. And then he got called off due to referee stoppage. And then Jacare, that was another clean KO. He got KO'd. And even against Calvin Gastelum, he almost got knocked out. It wasn't like he dropped. It looked like he was KO'd for a second. He got rocked, but just like Tyson Fury, he got back up. And then he thought, okay, well, I got to win the rest of the fight, which he did. He dominated the second round and he choked him out in the third. So how is this a defense of your stance? So my defense of Chris Weidman is that even in all those fights, if you look carefully at how he lost and how he was doing in the fight, it's unfair to say, well, he sucks now. Let's start with the Luke Rockhold fight. If Wait, wait, wait. Okay. If you're saying it's unfair to say he sucks now, then you're saying he always sucked. No, your point of, well, he's all, okay. Let me rephrase that. <laughs> I don't think it's fair to say he's always sucked because he has shades of greatness even in his losses. Whereas if he just sucked, then he would have just been dominated from the get-go, which is not the case with Chris Weidman. I think you would agree with that. I, I, yeah, I don't think he's... He sucks. I don't think he ever sucked. I think he came in overhyped because there was already so many people talking him up. But I also think he already came to the UFC depleted. He had already come in with so many weight cuts that even the times that he was winning, 
before these string of losses, he already looked like he was starting to gas second or third round. And that's stuck with him, and that's only gotten worse. And I think he's even talked about recently, maybe he needs to move up to 205. But a lifetime of bad weight cuts, it hasn't caught up to him. He entered the UFC damaged like that. And then another point is, he was always calling out cheaters, so he was very transparent about his testosterone numbers. And I think from the first fight, he had really low testosterone for an adult male in that age bracket. Look, he's a killer. So he probably was high testosterone at one point, but you get low testosterone like that from years of weight cutting and overtraining. So I think he came into the UFC already damaged. So you mentioned earlier, well, what might have caused his decline? And I agree, a history of wrestling, which has left a lot of wear and tear on his body, weight cuts that have depleted him that are now catching up. Age is definitely a factor. He's getting older. He's not getting better like Israel. And... It's scary, but he's been hit in the head multiple times. And it's not as if there's a finite meter where, okay, after you hit this, you'll reset. It's no, it'll just keep getting worse. And after you get cracked a couple of times, it's going to be easier and easier to find the chin. And I don't want to accuse him of anything, but ever since you saw the test thing started happening, maybe it's the IV band, maybe it's something else, but he hasn't looked the same since then. And I think that's... Fair enough to point out, but I don't, again, I don't want to accuse him of anything. Well, he's a huge middleweight, and that's why they're talking about him moving up. So huge middleweights especially need that IV. Look, IV isn't cheating. It's just to rehydrate you. It's just that they got rid of it because they were afraid that you might hide things in the IV bag. So it wasn't that it itself is cheating, but he got caught up in that. And he wanted USADA to come in and clean it up, so he didn't complain. But I think he does need the IV bag. Right. And when you took away his main way of hydrating, you could clearly see that in the seven minute mark, that's when his performance starts to drop off significantly. And when you mentioned his game plans before, when you look at the Damian Maya fight, Mark Munoz and the first two Anderson Silva fights, he has a brilliant game plan of cutting off your range, making sure he can dictate the pace. You saw it even clearer with the Machida fight. Machida needs a lot of space to operate, and he was able to apply forward pressure and make sure that whenever Machida moved forward, he was always there to meet him with doubling up on the jab, which is how he knocked down Anderson Silva the first time. And for somebody to have such good ring cutting and pacing and pressure to all of a sudden in the seven-minute mark that goes out the window, it's not so much that, oh, I guess he forgot how to do it. It's more of he must be tired and he panics. And when you panic and you can't have the same amount of cardio and gas in the tank, that's when everything kind of goes to shit. So I think it's more of a age cardio issue than, well, he sucks. Well, leading up to the Anderson Silva fight, other than Mark Munoz, he outsized everybody else, like Tom Lawler or Damian Maya, who's at 170. Weidman is a huge middleweight. So he kind of bullied people. And then when he fought Anderson Silva the first time, he was controlling him kind of the way that Chael had game planned. But then it ended up losing Anderson Silva while Anderson Silva was showboating. And in their rematch, he was dominating him in the first round. But a lot of people have dominated Anderson Silva. But Anderson Silva looked just a little bit too aggressive because Anderson Silva is at his best being a counter-striker. Anderson Silva looked the same as he did when he fought Chael Son in the second time, which was coming out way aggressive. 
And when he gets way aggressive, he gets sloppy. So when he was fighting Chael Sonnen the second time, he was grabbing Chael Sonnen by the shorts to punch him. Uh, when Chael Sonnen was against the cage and he was a downed opponent, Anderson Silva did a flying knee. He didn't get called for it because it didn't end up hitting Chael in the face. But it, if it would have, it would have been an illegal strike. And then he beat him with strikes. But that already showed he gets overzealous in rematches where he really wants to win. And that's kind of how he looked against Chris Weidman. He wasn't fighting with the same composure. He was just out there a little bit reckless. And he threw a kick that got blocked and he broke his shin. And that's how the second fight ended. So even the two fights with Anderson Silva, I, I feel like it wasn't so much Chris Weidman beating him. It was more like Anderson Silva fighting really badly. I think that's not giving enough credit to Matt Sarr and Ray Longo for putting together a game plan that, as you pointed out, was set by previous opponents that have come up short. So one of the things Ray Longo talked about was how they noticed Silva will roll with the punches and pull away from strikes. But if you double up on the jab or confuse him with feints, he's more likely to bite. So he combined that with Anderson's need to... I guess, clown his opponents and goad them into striking because he'll use those opportunities when the opponents overreact or bite down on what they believe to be easy strikes against Anderson for his counters. Chris Weidman didn't fall for it because Chris Weidman had a very disciplined approach where he would jab. His head never left that center line. And whenever Anderson would try to goad him into strikes, Weidman didn't fall for it. In the first fight, the only strikes that really got to Chris Weidman were the low kicks, which he corrected in the second fight, as you pointed out, which led to Silva breaking a shin. But in that first fight, it's important to note that Chris Weidman was outstriking Anderson just by basic meat and potato combinations and doubling up on strikes. And in the second fight, as you mentioned, Anderson Silva got overzealous and then he was going for moves that he normally wouldn't. And it's not as if Chris Weidman got worse. He just figured, I'm going to use even more opportunities for setting up takedowns, holding you down, beating you up. And when we get back on the feet, I'm going to do the same thing I did in the first fight, but now I'm going to check your late kicks. When you're a champion like Anderson Silva for as long as he was, everybody has years to game plan against Silva. So they were the last ones to game plan. They had the most amount of time because they were the last ones and then they beat him. But with the Ray Longo, Matt Serra camp, there is a style that they use that I've seen over and over again that Al Iaquinta uses, that Chris Weidman uses also, and Matt Serra used in the past, which is single legs, whether you mean it or not, or as a feint, and then punches. And that's what he did to Anderson Silva, and it worked well. It didn't work so well against other fighters. And the thing about Chris Weidman is he's big and he's strong, but he was never fast. He was never explosive. So even against somebody like Kelvin Gastelum or Lyoto Machida or Vitor Belfort, when they hit him with speed, he had trouble. He overcame it, but that's always been one of his weaknesses because he's, he's good at crowding you. But then when they get crowded and explode at him, even from early on, he had a problem with that. He was able to catch Mark Munoz coming in like that with an elbow, but seasoned strikers like Gegard Mousasi, Kelvin Gastelum, uh, Vitor, they made him pay. And with Luke Rockhold, I don't even know if Luke was that much better than him. I think it was more like, by the end, Luke had more energy than Chris Weidman. It was more of a cardio contest because it was pretty even. And then by that final round, it just looked like Luke Rockhold had more energy. It had nothing to do with that Chris Weidman back kick. 
He went for it, but a lot of people do kicks. He just didn't have enough energy to recover after that kick. Chris has great scrambling ability. And in that Rockle fight, when he threw the kick, Rockle caught it, and then he just kind of fell. I thought, ooh, this can't be good. Because for the first two and a half rounds, it was fairly even back and forth with the first round being very dominant by Chris. But around that seven-minute mark is when Luke started coming back. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. Chris usually would continually apply pressure, be able to dictate range. But he's getting sloppy. A lot of the things that made him so good weren't there towards the later end of that fight. And in the third round, it was clear that Chris was losing, which is when he threw that kick because he thought, well, maybe this might throw him off. And it didn't. So heading into that fourth round, I thought, I don't know what Ray Longo and Matt Zara are telling him in that corner. But if it's not go back to what you were doing, then we're going to have problems. And by the time Luke took him down, was on top, it was as good as done. Yeah, Weidman had nothing left. But he still had a great game plan starting with the fight where he figured, okay, if I shoot in for doubles and I keep Luke guessing where he's not sure of what range I'm going to use, he might get confused. Even standing, Lucas always had trouble against that check hook where he would just go back, retreat in a straight line. And that's how Bisping caught him because he usually puts his hands down. And Chris was able to take advantage of it early on. Not to the extent that he should have, but no excuses. He lost that fight and he got tired. And that was also when USADA started ramping up their testing because it was the same card that Jose Aldo and Conor McGregor fought. And before the fight, Conor McGregor accused Jose Aldo of doping because they had that incident where the USADA official came and... Nova Unia says, well, we don't know if you're the official tester. So they threw out the sample and he said, come back tomorrow, which was always kind of shady. But that's when USADA really ramped up and started in the UFC. So you think it's a lot of it is the weight cut? I think not just the weight cut, but accumulation of damage throughout the years, a lifetime of wrestling, getting hit in the head as a profession. And... He is fighting better guys as he goes along. Make no mistake, he's fighting guys that are complete fighters. And even if they have one dominant strength like Jacare or Yo Romero, they're still well-rounded enough that you take any of the top five middleweights now, you pluck them into the 2009-2010 era, they'd be champions instead of Anderson. The thing about Chris Weidman that made him so good against Anderson Silva is also his kryptonite, though, outside of a lot of the other issues that we've both covered. So the reason why he was really so effective against Anderson Silva, he's really good at cutting off the ring, like you said. He's also good at not overstepping. He stays behind his feet and his knees, so he's never lunging in with his face. And he crowds you and tries to get you to strike first, right? He's trying to bait you. So against somebody like Anderson Silva... If you corner him, but you don't attack and you're standing right in front of him, that actually works well against him. That's what Michael Bisping did. He didn't want to overcommit and lunge, even when Anderson Silva put his back against the cage. And Derek Brunson did the same thing, crowding him, not overcommitting, and was able to kind of fight him from range. And Chris Weidman was really good at that, probably better than all of them. But that same reason that he's good at that is what caused him stylistically to have trouble with other people. Because he's good at crowding you, leading with his feet, 
and then kind of standing in front of you waiting for you to do something and then he's going to try to make you pay. Or if he sees a moment of weakness in your guard, then he'll attack first. But he's kind of really good at being patient, being right in your face, being a pressure fighter who doesn't overcommit and watches what you're doing to anticipate and then just try to outthink you. But what happens when he fights somebody who's really good at exploding when you're standing right there, right? So against Lyoto Machida, he had problems. Against Vitor, also somebody good at exploding, but he was able to beat them with the ground and pound. But let's skip ahead. I was talking about the Ray Longo, Matt Serra style of single legs to strikes. He tried that against Yoel Romero and standing in front of him, and he got countered with the perfect counter, the flying knee. And then with Gegard Musasi, Gegard just outboxed him. And then against Kelvin Gastelum, the same thing. When Chris Weidman was crowding him and standing in front of him, Kelvin just exploded on him and dropped him. Chris Weidman came back because one of his strengths is his composure. But then the same thing happened again with Jacare, where he was standing in front of Jacare. Jacare was standing in front of him and they just started throwing. And when you have a 50-50 standoff like that, where you're both just throwing and standing in front of each other, anything can happen. And an intelligent fighter shouldn't make it a 50-50 affair, especially somebody as decorated and a former champion like Chris Weidman. Chris Weidman says that's just how he fights. But to your point, when Chris Weidman is good, no, he doesn't fight like that. He's much more intelligent than that. But still, he does tend to stand in front of you too long. So I want to go down that list one by one. Let's start in chronological order. So against Machida, Weidman took advantage of Lyoto's need for always creating space for his counters, which stemming from his karate background. As you mentioned, Weidman does a great job of cutting off the ring and forcing you into his power strikes. Now, Weidman was able to keep Machida always on the back of his feet and pressured. So Machida would always have to dart in and out constantly, wasting energy, whereas Weidman could cut him off and wait for him to react. Not only that, but Weidman was able to throw more kicks and far more liberally because he knew that, okay, Lyoto's not going to really figure out the takedown from this. And he used those kicks to come in closer and set up strikes. Now, Machida did come back in the fourth and fifth, but to Weidman's credit, he was able to use clever hand fighting to trap Machida so that he can never come up with full counters and hit him hard. So I believe he won a judge's scorecard of 48-47 across the board. But Machida had the most success in that fourth round. But in the fifth, Chris was able to figure out, okay, Machida's having success beating me on the counters, hitting me with the left. So if I do a lot of hand fighting where I grab him, force him to fight dirty, I'm going to be able to win. Or at the very least, keep him from implementing more success. Now, we've covered Rockwood, so let's skip to the Yol fight. Now, against Yol Romero, it's important to note that in that first round, he was taking Yol down with the single and Yol didn't really have an answer in the beginning. I think it also speaks to his credit of Chris's credit of being able to implement strong game plans and not being scared of meeting another opponent strength for strength. And not only was he able to take Yol down, once he got Yol down, Yol had to work off all fours and relied on defensive wrestling. And when he was on the feet, Chris Weidman was able to feint him again and hit him. Now, in the second round, you started seeing Chris getting tired. And once Yol got a read of that and he noticed his footwork's getting sloppy, he's not really able to catch me with those single legs, that's when Yol started implementing his own game plan of taking down Chris, pounding him out, 
And it was that mild controversy going into the third round when Yoel wouldn't get off the stool or he was able to bite a little bit more time and Chris Weidman shrugged his shoulders like, come on, again? And when Yoel timed that when Chris was getting desperate, he timed that flying knee beautifully. There, No controversy there, but it wasn't so much that Chris had a terrible game plan. It's just once you get tired, fatigue makes cowards of us all. I think Yo would have always beaten him. That could be the case. The way the styles match up where Yo waits, waits, waits and explodes. And Yo is so hard to hurt. We saw how much damage Yo took against Robert Whitaker. And he just kept coming forward like the Terminator. And I think that's a bad style matchup for Chris Weidman. That could very well be the case. And if they fight 10 times, Yo could win nine out of those 10. But Chris Weidman did have a good game plan and he can implement it. But after a while, he just gets tired. Maybe if they fought again, he might be able to last longer and ultimately lose. But I think the same issue that plagued him in Rockhold and Yo Romero also crept up in Musasi. And just like against Yo Romero, Chris Weidman was able to take advantage of Gegard's lack of defensive wrestling. And it's important to note not just how Chris was able to take Musasi down, but how he was able to pass the guard. And Chris was always known, as you might know, in jiu-jitsu circles of his guard passing. And despite the different type of butterfly guard that Musasi was able to use, Chris was able to still pass it. But the problem was forcing him to work so frequently in that first round as soon as they got back up on the feet, he started gassing. And I thought, oh no, not again. Going back real quick to the Yo Romero fight, Yo Romero retreats in a straight line backwards and that's how Whitaker was able to catch him. So it was odd to see Chris having so much trouble with the way Yo retreated when he fought much better counter-strikers in Anderson and Lyoto and he was able to figure out a way around it. But against Yol, he just looked confused and tired, and then he got sloppy. And against Musasi too, when they got back up on the feet and Musasi was hitting him, he didn't look the same. And when Musasi was able to hurt him and Chris shot in on that sloppy takedown, which started the whole controversy with the knees on the downed opponent, I don't know if Chris would have been able to survive and beat Gegar because he looked absolutely winded and Gegard looked like he was gaining steam. Or even before that, even when Chris was fresh, Chris was still getting outstruck by Gegard. It just got worse after Chris started getting tired. I don't know if he got outstruck. It was fairly back and forth, but he wasn't dominant in that striking range. But once Chris realized, okay, that's enough of that, and he took Gegard down past his guard, Gegard did a great job scrambling up and making sure Chris fought defensively, and he wasn't able to land vicious ground and pound. Once they got back up, you could tell that Chris started panicking. And even though Musasi was the first orthodox fighter that Chris has had in a while, he looked absolutely flustered. I don't know if he got used to fighting Southpaw opponents and fighting an orthodox opponent threw him off. But he started throwing reckless right hands instead of the smart double right hands that he had in the past that gave a lot of his opponents trouble. And it didn't work out well for him because once Musasi knew that he's panicking and the thing that's always been constant about Musasi he stays composed even when he's losing and getting beat he'll stay composed you can't read anything on his face guys like a sphinx so moving forward and with the gas fight he did well he got caught 
he got over aggressive because he was able to take Gaslam down. He thought he could do it again. And Gaslam do that wicked straight left hand and drop Chris. He thought, ooh, I can't do too much of that. And then he was able to win. And I want to move on to the Jacare fight because one of the things that he worked on his time off because after the Gaslam fight, he hurt his thumb. He was off for a year. When he came out against Jacare, he had a beautiful jab that he was able to use in all forms, whether it's just a counter, whether it's the paw at Jacare, whether it's to hurt him to the face. And it's something he's shown before, but never to that degree where he was able to piece up Jacare. And in that first round, Jacare really had no answer other than hooks and shots to the body. Now, in that second round, I thought this is where it's going to get critical because Jacare started throwing more punches to the body when he realized I might not be able to get Chris in the head, but this is going to pay off dividends later on. And you could slowly start to see Chris fade, get tired, and he got drawn into exchanges with Jacare. And I thought, this isn't good. You know he's not going to take Jacare down. He wasn't going for any takedowns in that fight. But once it was obvious that Chris had a choice between defending his midsection and defending his head, he chose to take shots to his midsection and body so that he could preserve his head. Now, it came to an unfortunate conclusion in the third round when Jacques Ray hit Wyman enough times in the body that Wyman would drop his hands and he clipped him in that temple beautifully and it dropped him. But I don't want it to negate any of the work that Wyman did in that first round when he showed, I don't want to say a revised jab, but a much more polished jab than he had shown in the past. I think Jacques Ray investing in the body shots early on, he was able to freeze Chris. So it wasn't just about picking between the head defense and midsection. All those body shots and Chris's suspect cardio, later on, it froze him. He couldn't, he didn't have the same mobility. His legs would have moved because when you work the gut like that, your ability to pivot and explode and move in an athletic stance gets really weakened. You just kind of, it freezes your whole body. And he was forced into those exchanges because his body was frozen, just like we saw with Dan Hooker and those body shots. He just was, after a while, a punching bag. But the thing about Jacare versus Chris Weidman made me think about Anderson Silva and Chris Weidman again, which was if it didn't end so early and they went all five rounds, what would have happened? And the reason why I wonder about that is because when Chris Weidman is most effective is when he gets a lot of takedowns in the first round. But we didn't know back then what that would look like in the later rounds because he finished Anderson or Anderson finished himself, however you want to think about it. And I already started seeing that with Lyoto Machida. But later on, against Luke Rockhold, he really, I think, came to realize, if I shoot a lot of takedowns in the first round, I don't have much left later on. And so after that, you started seeing that he didn't go for as many takedowns as he used to. Now, he did shoot takedowns against Yol, but he didn't try to really keep them. He let Yol get up because he was hoping to gas Yol Romero. So it was more of non-committal takedowns. But even from then, from losing, he realized, oh, man, I can't even I can't even mess around with that. So after Yoel Romero, I think the reason why he didn't take Jacare down at all wasn't because he was afraid to fight Jacare on the ground. Chris Weidman's fought a lot of good jiu-jitsu guys on the ground in training. He has a row of killers over there at Massera and John Danaher School. I think he realized for his cardio, he can't shoot for takedowns that much. He'll shoot for takedowns if it's there, but he learned from Luke Rockhold and from Yoel Romero, 
maybe even from gay guard that if I shoot too many takedowns, I'm going to get gassed. So I think it wasn't like a game plan thing where, oh, I'm going to switch it up and confuse him by not taking him down. I think he realized he couldn't take people down the way he could without sacrificing so much from his gas tank. And that's why he fought Jacare the way he did. And even with that, he was still gassing. And I think he wouldn't have gassed so much if it wasn't Jacare working all those body shots. But the thing that made him so effective always came with a cost. It came with a high cardio cost. We saw that again with Kevin Lee against Aliyah Quinta, where Kevin Lee's takedowns gassed himself. And Chris Wyman is kind of like that. So the thing that made him good in the past also took so much away from his cardio. And now he's trying to have more longevity by not shooting so much takedowns, but that makes him less effective. So it's a double-edged sword. And I think that's part of the key reasons why, because that was such a feature of his fighting style, why he was always overhyped. Because the thing that made him good is also the thing that'll make him bad in the later rounds. Perhaps, but he was able to take down Gaslam and keep him down. And it got up to the third round. Is it just because Gaslam's undersized? Yeah. I mean, he did that against Damian Maya. He did that against Tom Lawler. He did that against Leota Machida. Against smaller guys, yeah, he could do that. But when he had somebody a little bit bigger than him, Luke Rockhold, he was so tired after the first round. So do you think it's more of the weight cut and the size that's hurting Chris? I think if he wanted a longer career, he should have started out at 205. But he came in before USADA, right? So I think maybe he would have come in in 205 if he had entered post-USADA era. But with that said, if he had started out at 205, I don't think he would have ever been champion at all. Maybe he would have a longer career, but he was never going to beat a John Jones. I don't even know if he would have beaten... uh, Daniel Cormier. So right now in his career, we have to ask that again. What should Chris Weidman do? Should he stay at 185 when it's clear that it's really depleting him? Or should he move up to 205 with all these giants? I think it's clear that 185 is depleting him. And without having talked to him, maybe it's the IV band that's really keeping him from able to replenish the way he used to. And it could just be age. He's getting older. He's closer to 40 than he is 30. And if you account for all the damage he's taken throughout his career, it can't be good, especially when he took all those short notice fights and he had to drop a massive amount of weight quickly. There's no way your body doesn't pay for it later. And it looks like he's paying for it now. And at light heavyweight, where he walks around, I think the last time he spoke, he maybe has a walk-around weight of closer to 220, 225. 205 is not that bad of a cut, but 185 is drastic because that means if he accepts any fight, from the moment he signs that contract, he has to watch what he eats. He has to train differently, and it takes time away from being able to expand on his skill sets or focus on the cardio. And If you have less fluids in your brain, the less punches you can take before it affects you. So let's think about 205. It's actually a weaker division than 185, but you have two or three killers at the top, right? So I could see Chris Weidman or even a Luke Rockhold getting to a number one contender fight. But what happens when Chris Weidman has to fight like an Alexander Gustafsson or a John Jones or a Daniel Cormier? Or maybe Rumble Johnson comes back. What happens there? I think he could do well against all the other people like Diago Santos or somebody like Anthony Smith or Volkan Ostemir. But 
at the very top, unless John Jones retires, I think Chris Weidman's days as champion might be over. Unless he gets a lucky opportunity at 185 where Robert Whitaker is too damaged and Joel Romero gets old and he's able to just keep killing his body to make 185, he might actually be able to get the title one more time. That might be easier than 205, but yeah, he'll have to deal with the weight cut. If I was his manager, I don't know what I would recommend to him. And I think that's why Chris is having such a hard time making a decision. There's no right answer because like you mentioned, if Whitaker has indeed taken too much damage and he's forced to retire earlier than most, I don't think he's even 30 yet. And Yoel, who's right up there, he's over 40. I don't know how much longer he's got. And if you take those two out, Musasi's no longer in the UFC. He's over in Bellator killing it. And Jacques is also getting up there in age. He's older. I don't know how many more fights he has. And Chris might see a light at the end of that tunnel. But the fact that it's killing his body can't be good for him in the long run. At 205, I think you mentioned Rumble Johnson. I think Rumble's, if he comes back to MMA, he's coming back as heavyweight. I don't know if he could make even 205 at this point. And Cormier has that self-imposed retirement date of March 2019. So that's two people he might not have to worry about in the foreseeable future. Gustafson is a tall task because you have a guy who's 6'4", good takedown defense, rangy striker, faints a lot. And with John Jones, John Jones is a killer. But the interesting thing about John is you never know what's going to happen with him. In 2019, he might get busted for something. And Chris Weidman sees, okay, I just need to be Gustafson because Jones might be out again for three years, two years. Who knows what that guy is capable of? Gustafson gets injured a lot also, so it might end up being like Chris Weidman versus uh, Ostemir for the title. And that's something he could do. And the same weird things could happen at 185. But definitely as a journeyman, if he wants to fight several more years, I think it would be easier at 205. 185, yeah, because of anything that could happen, he could be champion again. But also the way the UFC is, it's really hard to be a champion for long now. I think the days of Anderson Silva holding the title for so long, those might be behind us. Other than somebody like John Jones, you have to be so much better than everybody else. Then you might be able to hold the title longer because something that's changed since these guys first came in that they didn't have to worry about is five round fights. You only have to worry about that as a champion. So as a champion, it's hard to stay champion for so long because you're taking two extra rounds of damage. You look at Yoel Romero and Robert Whitaker, and from their five-round affair, they're still out. It's just really, really hard on the brain and the body. So a champion has to keep doing that. But to get to the title now, you have to fight all these main events in these smaller shows. So you also have to fight these five-round fights. So now, by the time you get to the title, you're already so depleted that how are they going to hold on to these titles? because they've already given up so much of themselves fighting in these main event shows to become the number one contender. So I think we're also going to see constantly changing of titles because the way the UFC system works, everybody's too damaged. And the other thing is, because of their structure where it's not a flat pay like in boxing or actually any other sport, they rely more on low pay and then a win bonus. So fighters are willing to take more damage just because they're willing to stick around to get that win bonus because they need it so bad. And then what does that do for the cornermen? They're not going to throw in the towel because they get a percentage of your purse. So if you happen to win, they benefit more from you getting a win bonus. 
So everybody's in it for you to fight longer and more rounds and not throw in the towel and just take more damage. So Chris Weidman could be champion again. I could actually see it in 185 and 205, but it might be because the champions are so damaged. But also if he becomes champion, he's already so damaged that I don't think he could hold on to it anymore. So it's really ultimately Chris Weidman is a canary in the mine where we're seeing athletes who came in before the USADA era having to adapt to the USADA era. And they came from a lifetime of wrestling where they're already depleted. We saw that with Johnny Hendricks, where he was champion, but 80% of his good years were already done by the time he even got into the UFC. And now they're in an era where they have to fight way more rounds than they used to when they first signed up. So Chris is a victim of that. And so it's hard to have favorite fighters because it's hard for them to get anything going because they keep losing. So I think ultimately, it's not even about Chris Weidman. It's about UFC and MMA. Is this a sustainable system for fighters long-term? I think if you have brutal weight cuts and longer rounds, no, it's not sustainable because you're essentially prolonging damage and you pay for it now or you pay for it later. You might get a busted thumb and says, I'm out for six months. Or you might say, oh, I'm good. I can fight another main event in a couple of months, but you're shortening your career down the line when you can't get out of bed in the morning without all these aches and pains. So no, it's not a good system set up for long-term athletic development. Would this have happened to Chris Weidman if the UFC had more weight divisions, like a 195-pound division, and if they only had you fight three rounds for all fights? In three rounds and without the harsh weight cuts, Chris Weidman would have a much longer career, along with a lot of other fighters. But the way the system is now, we're shortening these fighters, not only their life expectancy, but their careers. Wrestling always has more weight classes. And because of the same day weigh-ins, it's less likely that they're going to cut massive amount of weight before the event. And despite that, because they're constantly weight cutting, it still damages their organs long-term. And with Chris Weidman coming from that wrestling background, he might not know of any other way to do it than do it tough, where if it sucks, you just have to tough it out and make sure that you could still fight. There was that story where he passed out from weight cutting before Damian Maya fight and Ray Longo was close to pulling it, but he said, no, 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 I'm good. I can still do this. That's why he said my performance against Damian Maya wasn't that good, but I almost died from weight cutting. And I thought that's probably not good. You're going to pay for that sometime soon or later. And then once he started losing, I was like, oh, I remember now. I remember why it's so hard for you to cut weight, why it's so hard for you to stay focused and I guess replenish as the fight goes on. I think he also came in at a time where it was all about overtraining. When Tito Ortiz was fighting, he was talking about doing two, three a days. You know, sometimes he would do two a days, sometimes he would do three a days. And look at his body, it was falling apart. Now you're not seeing people train eight hours a day anymore. They're training smarter. And I think he still comes from a school that's training kind of old school. And I think they're starting to learn now that they shouldn't overtrain, but they're still figuring it out. A lot of MMA is figuring it out. So a lot of these people who are in the interim, not sure how they're supposed to train or what smart training looks like yet, they're also coming in just burned out from training. And I think that's also Chris Weidman. It's the weight cut, it's the accumulated damage, but it's also overtraining because he's probably trained the same way he learned from wrestling, just grind, 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 and work as hard as you can. 
But in wrestling, you only do that for a certain number of years. And then maybe you get into Olympics or maybe you don't. So it was meant to, so it was always meant for you to burn out quickly. It was never a sustainable thing where you have a 15 year career as a professional. But MMA, you're trying to do this for a long time to earn as much money as you can. And that type of training and five rounds and head damage, it's just too much. And so I think he also is a sign of that problem. How are you supposed to train for MMA? And I think he tends to overtrain. I don't disagree with that. And it doesn't help that he comes from that Matt Serra Ray Longo school where, yes, they're training the new crop of talent. But it could be through methods that they've used themselves from years and years. And it might not have updated all that much. Yeah, they, they pride themselves in being old school. And they might have that mindset of, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We're able to create champions using this. And they can point to Ally Quinta and say, like, see, look, he beat Kevin Lee. And even though Kevin Lee had four years to get better and develop as a fighter, Al still has his number. He's still being able to use her system and win. Yeah, I think with guys like Al and even Al Jermaine, because they're younger and maybe more educated in the game just from just because they've heard from old timers, I don't think they train the same way as Chris Weidman or some of the other guys who are older than them. They're training smarter. And I think even Al had the confidence to take time off and come back. Not just the confidence, but I know Al Jermaine, I believe on his own, he will teach physical education. I know he has a background in kinesiology or of the sort while he was wrestling. And Ally Quinta famously sells real estate part-time. So it could also free their minds of having to rely solely on fight income. So they focus purely on, oh, I just need to have this skill set and develop it so I could become a better fighter as opposed to going from camp to camp only worried about how can I win, how can I win, and less on, well, what should I learn? Really, it's not just about Chris Weidman. It's about the way the whole sport is, the way the training is. As far as MMA has come, it still hasn't figured everything out. And the way it's being done now is too damaging. USADA was supposed to be beneficial, but it actually ends up hurting fighters more than it helps them. As far as their health, they're still training maybe too much. And maybe a lot of fighters are now too far gone for them to even benefit from tapering off and not enough weight classes for all these different body types, I think we're going to see a lot more Chris Whitemans. The one of many to come. I think we're going to have to do a lot of these, what the fuck happened to this fighter? And hopefully the UFC will adopt more weight classes and maybe get rid of at least five round main events that aren't for the title. No more USADA. Fuck the police. Just let them roid. Who cares? <laughs>